Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, contributing editor at Prospect Magazine, and today I'm joined by the world's greatest reader of neoliberal thinking, Quinn Slobodian. Having previously chronicled the market radicals who paved the way for Reagan, Thatcher and so much that followed them, he's now turning his mind towards the big libertarian idea for the future, namely shattering the political map and perhaps shattering democracy in the process. I'm going to ask him to help us make sense of Brexit and the potential unravelling of the British Union in that context. But first, Quinn, welcome. Let's have a word about your core cast of libertarian characters. Now, some of them, nearly all men, are going to be very familiar to listeners, I imagine. The, you know, Milton Friedman, Frederick Hayek, William Rees Mogg from The Times, the Texan politician Ron Paul and Peter Thiel of Silicon Valley. There are others, though, including Friedman's anarcho-capitalist son, David, who are much less familiar, and also some far-right figures like Richard Spencer, who people might just about remember for his world-famous cry of Hail Trump. And these people pop up and they seem at least as motivated by kind of racist identities than individual freedom. So when, when you look across this cast of characters, what really do they have in common? Well, yeah, thanks for the introduction. I think that the work that I've done in the past has really been very devoted to pushing back against this idea that market radicalism or neoliberalism is about doing away with the state and the work I did before was really about the role of laws and statecraft and encasing markets and producing spaces within which market exchange and sort of commercial exchange and commodified interactions can happen. But in the back of my mind, I always knew that I wasn't telling the whole story because there are some um, libertarians, subsets of the kind of neoliberal intellectual movement who in fact do want to do away with representative government and states altogether. So in a way, this book is kind of a reckoning with that. It's an attempt to sort of come clean with the fact that, in fact, there are varieties of libertarian thought which are indeed anti-statist in the extreme and do believe that you can sort of render all forms of social life and sociality into monetary and commercial style transactions. So the cast of characters in this book are really the kind of people who believe that. So it's actually less 
the Milton Friedmans and the Friedrich Hayeks, who of course saw very important roles for government and states. And more, as you said, Milton Friedman's, in a way, more eccentric and more interesting son, David, and, and then in turn, his son, Patry Friedman, who is well known for having launched the idea of building seasteads or sort of floating polities upon the ocean. So this is sort of the criteria for inclusion in this book was people who actually properly wanted to do away with states and and were sort of at the furthest reaches of the spectrum of kind of radical libertarian thinking. And even then, though, the word libertarian, we might think the kind of threads through these people is that you should be able to do what you want. But the liberty gets a bit iffy, doesn't it? You've got a, an Arizona gated community where you report people involved with it are saying, you know, if some eccentric wanted to paint his house purple, that would be stopped because it'd be interfering with other property owners. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the essence of it is, is that to do away with the state is not to do away with regulations and rules, in fact. And one of the things I like about the people that I read about in this book, David Friedman and Murray Rothbard is also a figure that recurs throughout the book, is they're always quite frank about this. I mean, the idea that their future society were it to be realized, and thankfully the chances are you know, pretty low, would not necessarily be distinguished by very high levels of personal freedom. Why? Because they're very conscious of the fact that if you want to break down a society down to its smallest units and and rebuild from there, not on the basis of democratic government, but on the basis of person-to-person transactions or insurance-style relationships rather um, rather than citizen government relationships, then you are going to have to be very clear about expectations in this future polity that you're building. And the expectations will vary. So some people will want, let's say, an environment where where you know certain kinds of behavior is outlawed, certain kinds of social behavior is outlawed. They're quite open about the idea that some of these future sort of stateless societies would be very intolerant of, let's say, forms of same-sex marriage, even certain kinds of religion might not be tolerated in one polity. And in some cases, they prefer those ones, the more intolerant ones. But then the upside is next door, you'd have another polity that might be much more tolerant. The terms and conditions that you'd sign when you enter this community would vary. So they're they're very open about the fact that there will be a spectrum of what we might think of as usual kind of forms of individual expression. And that part of what makes their idea superior to the one that we have now is that you can select from a kind of a menu of levels of of individual expression and some people want less of it some people want more of it and the gated community model that you mentioned is as a sort of living example of this right where as i mentioned in the book people have been you know, ejected from gated communities for their dog being like a couple of pounds too heavy then the terms of the contract they signed into you know painting the painting their house the wrong color, using certain blinds instead of curtains, um, marrying someone a little bit too young. Often gated communities have minimum ages. You need to be a certain age. And by which I mean like someone who's 48 instead of 54. So those I think are actual existing libertarian communities in the sense that it's they are consensual communities based on sort of blank slate creations of, re- of rules and regulations not based on large groups, but specifically based on a small selective group of sort of customer clients rather than citizens. 
Okay, and, and let's just link it back to your previous work to, I mean, because they do pop up in this book as well, don't they, Hayek and Friedman? Mm-hmm. And some people listening might be surprised to see them lumped in with something that's a world without democracy. But you do trace them right back and show that like a huge part of their concern all the way through, mm-hmm. despite the kind of end of history moment where we talked about Friedman in the same breath as the triumph of liberal democracy has always been mm-hmm. checking democracy. This is where the book begins. The new book is, is Milton Friedman in 1978, sort of in front of the skyline of Hong Kong, um, just gushing about the wonders of this you know, British crown colony which manages to keep at bay the demands of the masses, which doesn't sign on to these global redistributionist quasi-socialist fantasies as he saw them, and managed to do this all by not just keeping democracy in check by a system of, you know, of checks and balances and kind of and legal arrangements, by, but by disenfranchising the vast majority of the population, right? There just simply wasn't one person, one vote suffrage at all under colonial rule in Hong Kong. And this sort of the thought starts to enter his work and the work of others that sort of sacrilegious as it might sound, there might be actually something superior about this way of organizing capitalism in which you're not constantly being disturbed by the sort of clamoring demands of the masses. So, you know, he and Hayek tried to think about ways that you could automate government. I mean, Milton Friedman's idea of a monetary rule is in a way to sort of take out individual discretion. Hayek had different ideas about pushing the rule of law forward in such a way that it would be able to trump the constitutional sort of constraints would be able to trump individual legislation or individual, the, the power of the individual vote. But another is this cohort of more radical folks was like, well, <laughs> if we like constraints on democracy, And if we like small scale sort of agile actors in the world economy, then what if we start thinking about just breaking up the existing nation states and sort of organizing at a smaller scale? And that was a kind of subcurrent of discussion in the 1990s. As you mentioned, we think of it as this end of history moment, unipolarity, the triumphal moment of the United States as the last reigning global hegemon. But if you go back and read the, I'm sure if you went back and read the prospect in the 1990s, if you go back and read foreign affairs, foreign policy, they're actually speaking just as often about the dangers of fragmentation and breakup, the moves for secession in places like Quebec, uh, Belgium, Spain. There was a lot of there was a lot of thinking that, in fact, we wouldn't be entering a kind of one world under one one global economic system, rather we'd be entering this hyper-fragmented kind of super-balkanized political patchwork space in which many private actors, mafia, drug cartels, NGOs, these sort of new non-state actors would become just as important as states and representative governments. So part of the book, the book's intention is for me as a historian is to kind of tap back into that that zeitgeist, which I think has been kind of forgotten or at least placed to the side in our memories of what the post-Cold War moment was. Could you just have, we'll come on to that then in a second about the the fracturing, which the core core idea in the Mm. new book, but could you just say a word 
on your relationship with the key kind of neoliberals, libertarians. I heard you give a talk on your previous book in which you said the current chair or president, whatever it is, of the Mont Pelerin Society. So that's the society that was set up by Friedman and mm-hmm. Hayek, isn't it? Rather liked your book, even though it certainly says a lot of things about neoliberal thinking that the likes of Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher would never have said out loud, but they mm-hmm. like it. Do you, do you get on with them? Do they give you access to the archives and all that kind of thing? Sure. Well, I mean, I think it's worth saying a word about how I use that term neoliberalism because it gets bandied around a lot, right? And some people use it to mean just like a synonym for global capitalism as it exists today or capitalism over the last several decades. And the way I've used it in my work is to talk about a relatively small group of people who started using that term themselves as early as the late 1930s and don't often refer to themselves as neoliberals anymore, but sometimes do, especially in German-speaking contexts. And they were, you know, loosely gathered, meeting annually in this place that you mentioned called the Montpellerin Society. And it was actually, you know, a very intellectually vital kind of gathering place. And it wasn't at all kind of, I don't think it was a place for sort of deciding on unified doctrine. There was a great differences of opinion in this group of people from people who believed in the use of constitutions to protect markets to people, like I've mentioned, who just wanted to drop out and get rid of states altogether to people who believed in sort of mathematized economics, other people who thought that the use of math and economics was useless and and totally misleading. So you can kind of, or what I've done is follow these debates through this Mont Pelerin society over the decades. And one of the things that makes doing that possible, and in fact, almost easy, is that the full archives of the Mont Pelerin society are held at the Hoover Institution archives at Stanford, which is a great institution because it was an anti-communist institution. So you have collections of you know, communist and, and new left parties from all over the world there. But it was also a kind of a conservative institution. So you have the papers of Friedman and Hayek and, and so on all gathered there as well. So it's like a one-stop shop, really, for the intellectual history of the Cold War. And when I first started publishing this stuff, I was coming from critical position, of course, or maybe I think it should be obvious. And I, you know, consider myself to be a leftist. And to my surprise, the work was taken seriously by some members of this Mont Pelerin Society and some of these neoliberal intellectuals. And my first response was to be actually very happy that we were able to have a kind of meaningful debate. And what I realized is that they admired the fact that I'd just kind of done the work, that I had gone into the archives. I knew the individual debates. I knew the kind of trajectories of the people. And I wasn't doing a kind of simple lumping together of many disparate theoretical paradigms into one big thing called neoliberalism. I was trying to parse out the differences. So it was, the admiration was so extreme that in one case it led to, I think, a pretty extraordinary misreading of my entire thesis. Deirdre McCloskey, who's a very well-known historian of economic thought, reviewed that book, Globalists, for the Literary Review in the UK. And she thought I was advocating um, neoliberal global economic governance. I mean, the, the review said something like, if we want to know how to protect the global economy in tumultuous times like this, like here is basically a recipe book, <laughs> which is amazing because the whole book was about 
the antagonism really of neoliberal thought towards anything like the fullness of sort of Republican democracy. And the fact that it was possible for someone with acumen like her Mm. to read it that way showed me that I must have come, you know, very close to the bone. Uh, to the point that I seem to be actually describing it well enough that someone like her was able to embrace it as her own philosophy. She's a member of the Mont Pelerin Society. So as long as I was talking about these sort of visions of supranational governance and let's say the more moderate versions of neoliberal thought, uh, I remained pretty well in the good graces of the more... um, economically engaged Mm -hmm. members of this neoliberal movement. When I started to poke around in the wings of the neoliberal movement that have either seceded from, let's say, this neoliberal movement and started creating partnerships on the far right, or who folded versions of scientific racism into their own thinking. I've just published, for example, a piece on Charles Murray, who, you know, was really responsible for bringing back IQ racism into public discussions in the United States in the 1990s. And he's a member of the Mont Pelerin Society, speaks regularly at their gatherings. And as soon as I I sort of started to what they thought was make the sort of guilt by association, then, you know, relationships have cooled. And that's a very mild way of putting it. I mean, there's been several hit pieces written about me and my work on on the sort of market think tanks like the American Institute of Economic Research, you know, claiming I'm defaming the work of Mises and misunderstanding this and that. They've they've lodged complaints with Cambridge University Press for journal articles I've published because they say I misread some line from Mises, which, you know, this long and cumbersome investigation discovered that no, in fact, I hadn't. So it's, it's interesting because I think in the post-2016 um, moment when there was a sense of the populist attack on on global economic governance. Insofar as I was giving an intellectual scaffolding for global economic governance, I, my work was kind of recuperable for them. In the the as insofar as I showed that there was actually a family feud within the neoliberal intellectual movement, and some people did sort of partner with the people who were embracing ethnic mm. essentialism arguing for, um, you know, nationalism as a potentially helpful force for protecting the market, then I became more persona non grata, except for then (laughs) the more right-wing market-based kind of conservative types. So now, you know, the the people around sort of spiked and unheard are now more interested in the work that I'm doing because I think it helps to support their idea that that the sort of deracinated kind of non-nationally based neoliberalism was only one variety and that you can have, let's say, nationalism and ethnic essentialism with some version of economic liberalism. So I found myself really ping pong, like right. pinball <laughs> so uh, between these different feudal fights. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's get on with this idea of, of if you like, cracking up the map of 200 odd mm-hmm. countries at the, at the moment you open with peter Thiel, who um for anyone who doesn't know is a billionaire from paypal and, and facebook back in 2009 as a sort of youngish executive fantasizing about turning those 200 countries into five thousand or something i mean is, is the basic 
impetus here tax competition that sort of thing like if you've got enough small countries they've all got to compete to bring the investors in and so they've got to do what the investors like i think that the existence of actual existing you know tax havenry and tax competition is what makes this sort of vision seem you know not just plausible but you know very close to what we already have in a sense right so the book is I think, an attempt to write together two separate stories. One story is the sort of reconfigurations of economic geography that have happened over the last 30, 40 years, whereby jurisdictions within nation states have been set aside with different rules, different sets of regulations to draw in investors, you know, lighten tax burden, often lighten labor and environmental regulations. So you're getting already a kind of internal crack up just from a practical matter of um, drawing an investment. The United States is a great example of that, right? Where one state will compete with the next by saying, you know, if Amazon comes here or Tesla comes here, we'll give you this, we'll give you this tax break, we'll give you that tax break. So we already have the kind of thing that Teal is talking about. That's part of the argument of the book is just to sort of bring in the work of geographers, anthropologists to show that we already do work, live in an economic sense in a world that has more than 200 jurisdictions. And for some time, that's, that's not a new thing, is it? Right. Right, exactly. I mean, yes and no, right? I mean, the, the zone is the, the sort of generic term under which most of this travels. And foreign trade zones have existed in the United States since the 1930s. And these export processing zones were rolled out in places like Taiwan and Puerto Rico in the 1950s and 60s. But it really has been since the 1980s and really 90s that you see a kind of vertical rise in the numbers of special economic zones, almost entirely because of China. China is the place that really has utilized this model to create a kind of uh, a sort of a range and a kind of a menu of different versions of local control according to what seems most expeditious for bringing in investors and kind of not building up too much local power. So they've used that balance very well. The world of tax havens that many people have written about very well, especially in the UK, sort of Oliver Bulow and, and Nicholas Shackson and so on, has also you know existed as I talk about in the book with Liechtenstein and places like that since the 1920s, really, since you've had income tax, you've had tax mm -hmm. havens. So these things have been happening on different timelines. But what I find interesting about the last 20 years or so, or really more like 15, the time that Teal was writing was in 2009, is you have people mostly who have at least one foot in the business world, if not more, who have looked at this which in this, in a way, kind of just practical, prosaic world of jurisdictions and have sort of wondered if this could be the basis of a larger political reorganization of the world, right? That this wouldn't just be a place to do manufacturing or stash your corporate profits. But what if this, the very idea of one person, one vote and a world of nation states were itself kind of becoming obsolete, that that Wilsonian legacy that's now, you know, been supposedly the, the, the principle of politics for over a hundred years. What if that was, had been eroded enough by the practice of, you know, zoning and creation of new jurisdictions? So you mean, you mean, that we um, could just kind of be frank about it. Woodrow Wilson's national self-determination stuff. That's the thing that's being overtaken by all the zones. 
Right, exactly. That idea of like one nation, one language, one territory, it never really fit the world that well. It's always been awkward and it, it always downplayed the import, the asymmetries of economic power. So the more economically minded people like Thiel would just sort of say, like, rather than pretending that politics still leads economics, what if we just be you know, honest about the fact that economics leads politics and that we should use economic principles to organize politics rather than the other way around? Hence the interest in places like Dubai and Singapore, places that are often known as sort of places that the, that the leaders act like CEOs, that there's a kind of managerial attitude rather than a democratic attitude that guides the conduct of their governments. Those places then become kind of iconic as templates for um, a, a grander kind of political reorganization. And I think one of the things that really only made became clear to me in the course of writing the book is that there really are these two very important impulses that drive that rethinking. I think the first is the one that we already mentioned, which is the end of the Cold War. And that one is, in fact, you know, in a way kind of obvious because the def- communism is defeated, capitalism stands on, def- you know, unrivaled. So it, it would make sense for the market radicals to feel a kind of a sense of, of hubris or exuberance. But the other one, I think, is really the, the American invasion of Iraq. And that, you know, I think as we get further from it, it, it kept ever more striking to go back to that moment and see read writing from around the time of the invasion and to realize how, how um, I think a certain, like a lot of taboos were broken publicly in that time. The idea that you could simply invade a sovereign nation and remake it and then you wouldn't really have to apologize for that. You could do that sort of audaciously and not only by claiming that you were importing democracy, certainly that, but also by saying we're going to bring investment to the region, we're going to make this into a stable investment climate, we're going to bring in outside businesses to run the whole thing, you know, hence sort of Halliburton and Bechtel. So I don't think you get to Teal and Patry Friedman talking about creating a, a, a patchwork world of, you know, thousands of states unless you have the American invasion of Iraq that makes it, thing, makes it seem like, hey, the biggest world country in the world is on board with the blatant violation of the principle of national self-determination. So why can't we all get in on it too? Although maybe also the fact that it kind of failed, <laughs> you know, the, the guiding hand from above means you've mm-hmm. you got to do this, the, the splintering. Can, can you just bring it closer to the UK now for a minute? You talk mm-hmm. about um, something Boris Johnson talked about quite a lot, which was free ports, you know, these, these places you can mm-hmm. bring things in violation or bypassing the normal rules. Now, it just... A month or two ago, we almost went an awfully lot further down that path under the sort of blink and you'll miss it administration of Liz Trust because her big idea mm-hmm. with these low tax regulation light investment zones where deprived communities was kind of bid against each other to try and bring private money in, but bid, bid against each other in terms of like loosening environmental regulations and that kind of thing and that really was the 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 big idea for those few weeks until they (laughs) they kind of crashed their own um project and presumably if it happened there's an argument yes you can kick start deprived Sunderland or deprived Barnsley by bidding against each other but once the bidding gets underway the cumulative effect is going to be less tax and less regulation everywhere isn't it 
Well, I mean, this is one of the many things I found really farcical about the trust interregnum is just how blatantly the policy ideas were just being copy pasted from early Thatcher, right? I mean, this is the story that I tell in the book, which is very well known amongst urban historians, but I feel like not as well known outside of urban history, which is the sort of the birth of this idea of what were, what were called at the time also free ports, but also urban enterprise zones at the beginning of the very beginning of Thatcher's government and really pushed by Jeffrey Howe in particular, who was a Montpellier Society member, incidentally, and also was very inspired by the conduct of Hong Kong and the way that it had you know, risen from being a, a very poor and quote unquote overpopulated place to being a kind of you know, real locomotive of manufacturing and eventually service and finance hub in, Southeast, in, in East Asia. So in the early 1980s, he was inspired by the proposal by this labor left uh, geographer named Peter Hall who said what we should do is we should just take parts of the distressed urban zones inside of the UK and just lift regulations altogether. In fact, he wanted to just make them extraterritorial altogether. They, these small little patches inside, I think he names like Glasgow and Liverpool, would no longer be part of the UK at all. They would no longer be part of the European community. They would have no laws. <laughs> and the, the people within it would just make what they will of them. And he described it as creating many little Hong Kongs and British cities. And this was a pretty wild idea, obviously, but it was promoted not just in the UK, but also in the United States by um, the Heritage Foundation with a strong connection to the Institute of Economic Affairs in the UK. And th these were rolled out in the first Thatcher budget. You had a bunch of free ports. You had a bunch of urban enterprise zones. The only one that really worked, the one that I focus on in the chapters, of course, the Isle of Dogs and Canary Wharf. But, you know, geographers like Doreen Massey and others have been writing about these things for decades. And they always say the same thing. And what they've been saying is the same thing one would say to the trust proposal, which is that, it's not just a matter of a battle to the bottom, although that's bad too. But what these things end up being is just enormous corporate welfare endeavors. Because what what happens is the central government, the, the central government steps in to cover really all of the extra subsidies and the tax holidays and the extra things that are being granted to the incoming companies. And the point that I think it was Alan Walters made when someone said, well, why don't, no, Alan Walters wanted to turn the entire UK into an enterprise zone. And the response was, well, then, <laughs> you know, who would pay all the subsidies? Mm. Because in fact, at the end, these things just become, as Canary Wharf certainly was, I mean, it works insofar as the government pays for the light rail, it gives huge handovers to the big real estate companies. So they aren't even actually experiments in kind of hands off libertarianism. They are experiments in sort of the transfer of state resources into private hands. And it seems to me that the model that, that well, the mo certainly the model that Thatcher used and the one that Trust was proposing would be in that vein as well. The only option is if they actually took the advice of someone who was on the Freeport's advisory committee for Johnson and Trust, who was also key in pushing and rolling out the original ones, who was Amon Butler from the Adam Smith Institute, and he has always said and has said as recently as a couple of years ago, you know, these things will only work if they become their own countries. Mm. <laughs> so you actually you actually need to make the Freeport, not just, 
you know, a, a jurisdiction within the UK, but it needs to be. And that's, that's where it gets to, I think, the more radical end of these proposals. And it's one that, you know, so far, no government has actually been willing to court because they actually prefer this middle space where they just give handovers to private actors. I mean, you can see why a kind of uh, radical right kind of think tanker would quite like this idea of, of, of the UK mm-hmm. crumbling up like that. But but I'd be surprised if that's what Truss wanted. I, I thought she just thought, well, let's let's say we're going to do this. And then in, in the end, there'll be less yeah. tax and less regulation because there'll be downward competition on it. Right. And this is the catch in a lot of these proposals. I mean, this idea that we talked about with Teal, which is like, you know, let economics guide government and not just guide it, but displace it and 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 actually eliminate the practice of politics as we have come to know it in the sense of representative government. Well, <laughs> why would any representative government agree to its own? obliteration, right? I mean, there's a kind of a paradox there that you, you would expect to find a, how will you expect to find a partner in a political leader if the proposal is that they <laughs> self-immolate? So you'll never actually achieve that. So so what do you do? I mean, their proposal is goes in two directions. One, you go to places that never embrace the principle of representative government, hence the attraction of the Dubai model, right? I mean, you're in, if you're in like a kind of a hereditary monarchy, then you don't have to worry about them getting rid of government democracy. They never had it. So brilliant. You can do what you want there. And I think the ways that, you know, the ways that the, the sort of um, the star of Dubai shone very brightly in the exact period as the failures of the Iraq invasion became obvious is actually really important too, especially in the UK. I mean, the, the, the stature and the cachet of Dubai and, Britain is much higher than in the United States. I think it's closer. People can vacation there. Not for nothing that you've got Emirates on the jerseys of soccer teams. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's where footballers go for their holidays, there's a kind of there's a kind of luminosity to the Dubai model that you don't really have in the United States. Forget Qatar owning half the shard and all of that. So I think that the kind of looking out of the corner of the eye at this kind of authoritarian managerial non-democracy is is never far from the minds of the more radical thinkers in this vein. But I think that what you ran into, what you would run into with trust is the same thing you'd run in, you ran into with Thatcher is like at this, at some level, they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're going to want to satisfy their constituents and not entirely um, give over the very practice of, of, of government. So you either do that, you either find a distant model or you do what I, libertarians call soft secession inside of states. So you start to set up more privately owned spaces, whether they're residential communities or opting out of the public school system, creating self-run networks of media and creating sort of parallel societies inside of the surrounding government. One of the oddities is that when you think of the, the actual history of like where the impetus for crack up politics comes from, it's just as often from mm-hmm. the left, from the socialist nationalism of decolonization, and then you know that tends to be the, the the direction that we get the push for Scottish separation today. It's seen as a more left wing movement. But interestingly, mm-hmm. you quote one libertarian businessman, Patrick Schumacher, who sounds happy to cheer on Scottish separation on the grounds it would lead to socialist failure and then create an opening to move in. 
Yeah. Yeah. Patrick Schumacher is really one of my, you know, favorite slash least favorite characters in the book as well. I mean, people would have probably not heard of him in most cases, but probably most people listening to this would have heard of Zaha Hadid Architects. And if you hear Zaha Hadid Architects building a building now, it's actually Patrick Schumacher building the building because he is the principal and he runs the studio that Hadid built after her after her death. He has taken the crown and he's one of the more far-right anarcho-capitalist thinkers writing these days. I mean, he truly believes in the need to um, dissolve representative democracy and return to some kind of authoritarian commercialized rule. And he he's also you know, a nimble and in his own way, intellectually adept kind of agile person. And one of the things that he is aware of is that you can get these kind of transition states, basically. So it might be okay if you get the fracturing of legacy nation borders into some left, some right, some hard money, some fiat money, polities kind of competing with each other. Because as you just said, the inevitable outcome for someone like him is that the ones based on more socialist and redistributionist goals will collapse in the end. But he's not the only one. And in fact, I think there's ways that this is one of the more attractive aspects of this kind of crack up mentality is it doesn't make universal claims and nor does it necessarily claim the existing space of a nation state. So when sort of far-right libertarians in the United States talk about the future, they don't actually say we're going to seize Washington and run the entire, you know, landmass of the United States. What they do say is we're going to opt out in these well-defined kind of territorial quadrants of the United, former United States and organize the world differently inside of them. And we might have commercial relations with another like-minded Balkanized territory that's, you know, some thousand miles away from us, but we aren't going to sort of demand, demand at all. And I think that is another sort of deviation from our usual idea of both how decolonization works, but then also how revolutions tend to work with the sort of the French and the American and the Chinese revolution, the Russian revolution, the idea that there might be a massive political change, which actually leads to a total reconfiguration of borders is something that so far we only get mostly in sort of fiction and movies rather than political theory. And we should just close off by talking a little bit about Brexit and Europe, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a kind of interesting one here, isn't it? Because at one level, Brexit is an obvious example of crack up capitalism in action. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the EU historically has done much of what you wanted, you say that the Freedmen's and Hayek's wanted of putting mm-hmm. certain presumptions mm-hmm. about private property and the free market above, entrenching them above the reach of day-to-day politics in mm-hmm. transnational treaties. So there, there is a split, I guess, between the sort of steady as you, um, steady as she goes neoliberal who wants to cling on to the single market and then these characters mm-hmm. who, who, who kind of see there's real exciting gain in... Uh, in setting off some kind of dynamic that's going to like split the mm-hmm. split the continent up. Yeah, I mean, this was a split that already emerged actually in the early 1990s. If we look just at this kind of group of market radicals or neoliberal intellectuals before the European Union, which is in the late 80s with the creation of the single market, 
most sort of neoliberals were quite keen on the EU. They thought the idea of the EU, they said, you know, if this is going to mostly just be creating a common market, then that sounds great. I mean, what, what can, how can one sort of oppose that? With the creation of the euro, already there was kind of a split because there were many sort of leading economists and, and neoliberal intellectuals who felt that there shouldn't be a kind of a, a, a sudden sort of a decision from above to unite the currencies. There could maybe be parallel competing currencies over time. One could see which one gains steam. And more importantly, under Jacques Delors in the 90s, there was a there was so much discussion of a social Europe and the kind of the introduction of something like the equalization of labor conditions in the member countries and, and more transfers, the possibility of something like a transfer union or redistributional union that many of the people who had been quite excited about European integration from the neoliberal community changed their mind. And, you know, most famously in the UK, it's people like Ralph Harris starting the Bruges group, which still exists as a kind of, you know, a small contingent within the conservative party at the end of the eighties and beginning of the nineties, when the party as a whole was on board with European integration they were dissenters. And if you go to their website today, it will still say we've laid the intellectual foundations for Brett for the decision to leave the European Union. So the idea was this supranational integration, which had previously been a good thing, had been sort of hijacked by the socialists, had been hijacked, hijacked by the environmentalists and the feminists. And so one actually now needed to kind of scale back down to better protect market competition. And the example that someone like Rees Mogg and, and others involved with the the um, the Bruges group it, at the time would use was often places like Singapore and Hong Kong, right? We need to turn Britain into an Asian tiger style economy, a uh, kind of low wage um, aircraft carrier off the coast of the European Union, you know, bombing them with low prices and set possibilities for new investment. So that, that version of Singapore on Thames, which mostly became a kind of a slur against the Brexit faction in the course of the, the, the years after 2016 was actually a positive vision for many of the pro the pro Brexit people in the time before. And one of the things I think is useful talking about in the that I do in the book is that the Singapore idea is actually quite compelling if you open up to the many ways that Singapore actually operates, right? That actually you have a version of negative liberty, which is just tear up regulations and drop the taxes that one associates with an idea of Singapore. But in fact, that's not how Singapore works. A very activist state, lots of money on R&D, lots of state ownership. So that brief moment in late 2019, when it looked like there might be a kind of a leveling up movement, an attempt to reintroduce industrial policy, that looked a lot more like the real Singapore than this idea of sort of private government with total withdrawal of the state. And it seems to me that you know, that it would be smarter to orient towards the real Singapore rather than the imaginary one, um, <laughs> if I were <laughs> coming up with policy for the Conservative Party, which obviously... And when you, wait, final question, when you, when you think about um, whether it's like, you know, the Brexiteers or all these people kind of more widely across the world, but Brexit's an interesting one, you just get this sense that maybe they've bitten off more than they can chew in the, like, the... There may have been a fantasy about a kind of buccaneering, go-it-alone Britain with very little government. And then you kind of look at the mushy kind of outcomes that, that you get to. I mean, as you've researched this overall, have you, you're clearly very interested in it as a vision. But do you think it's a vision that's on the way or do you think it's a vision that's waning? 
Well, I think that the thing that makes the secessionist vision harder to control and also like arguably more politically kind of polysemous and like able to sort of take different forms is that when you do use a language as the Brexiteers did, you know, with the coming slogan of take back control, then on the one hand, you're just camouflaging the, the existence, the slogan that you displaced, which was, you know, like, go global or to really just sort of break away from the regulations of the EU. So you might've had a hidden agenda and some of them certainly did to just sort of deregulate, lower taxes, give more money to the city and so on. But the idea of taking back control does have within it sort of a a notion of democratic ownership on the part of the population. And if you don't do away with democracy altogether. If you if you adhere to the principle of democracy, then you continue to be accountable to the population. <laughs> and it is quite possible or even likely that your radical libertarian visions will be rejected at the polls the next time you're there or will, you know, run aground in the financial markets the way Trust and Quartangs did. So I think that as opposed to the globalist vision in its strong sense, which often really is about a kind of elite closure and a, and a sort of a closing down of political options is something that is sort of agreed among between states, not that this ever actually happens, but this is a vision, then that has probably more of a capacity to truly kind of disempower democracy than the secessionist vision, which always leaves the possibility of democracy in play in a way that I think can be disruptive sometimes to the better. <laughs> Thanks so much, Quinn, for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, do visit our website or pick up a copy of Prospect Magazine, where we regularly run pieces on political economy. Recent writers and interviewees have included Isabel Hilton, Martin Wolfe and John Kay. And where you should indeed see a piece or two on Quinn and his new book, Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy, which is out this spring with Alan Lane. But that's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening and do look out for another episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. 